There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? Hello, and welcome to Max Mike Batman. This week we're starting a new Bat series. Focus on Batman. I'm your host, Batman. And here's your other host, Batman. Batman, 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 Batman. Ah. What the Batman did you do that for, Batman? I can't believe it. Why are you Batmaning me like that? <laughs> oh. Ah, 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 okay, okay. No more Batman. Oh. Right. Sorry. Four Sorry. hours of Batman. S- so much Batman. So much Batman. Right. <clears throat> now, in all foolishness, folks, we are once again doing a short series focusing on the work of one particular actor. Last time, it was Mr. John Cusack. This time, we're focusing on someone who is nearly a foot shorter than he is. <laughs> Scarlett Johansson. Is she? Ms. Johansson has been acting since she was nine years old, starting with an uncredited part in a sketch on Conan O'Brien's old show and a credited role as John Ritter's daughter in the movie North. You remember that movie? I know no, it happened. Of co- yes, that's pretty much what most people do. And now in, the, in 2018 and 2019, she was rated the world's highest paid actress. Wow. And in the top ten highest paid of any gender. Wow. She has been nominated for and won multiple awards. In 2019, she was nominated for two Academy Awards in two different movies the same year. Wow. Yeah, one for uh, Marriage Story, Best Actress, and one for Jojo Rabbit, Best Supporting Actress. This has only happened 12 times in the history of the Oscars. She sadly did not win for either of them. Of the 12 people who have been nominated twice in the same year, seven of them... Meryl Streep? Possibly. I didn't look all the names, but I can tell you that seven of them uh, won at least one Oscar that year. They were all the men. The five who didn't win anything were all women. Wow, fig- what a surprise. Yeah, you figure it out. But today we're discussing what a lot of people consider her breakout role as Rebecca in the Terry Zwigoff movie Ghost World. And this movie, we can guarantee, is 100% Batman-free. Yay! <laughs> I guess that mask she wears at one point. I thought that was more, more Catwoman, but anyway, we'll it's get It's a BDSM Max. It's not Batman. It looks... It's and B got the little does not ears. stand for Batman. <laughs> it does! No. <laughs> but first, remember our poll question? Probably yes. not. I yes. didn't, but... <laughs> it was your anyway. question! Poll question... What was, what's your favorite first-time performance by an actor? A performance that just made you go... Wow, I want to see what that person does next. Mm. Dave Mackman says, Dave. I, would have, I would have said Mickey Rourke in Diner, but apparently that was not his debut. I didn't, didn't think it was, but I don't know what it was. Well, uh, still, I thought he did a great job in that, which is one of my favorite films ever. Mm. Mostly, I like to let the actors fade into the background, and I only tend to notice them for the first time when they appear as a character that, uh, that is, for me, subjectively remarkable. And uh, here, here we get a little controversial. Uh, this means I can see an unremarkable actor like Gary Oldman. Uh, excuse me. In film after film, and never notice him, and have no idea what he looks like. He, well, that's kind of called acting. I mean, yeah, I, 
I, we love all of your answers. This was the only time where I ever took any kind of issue on uh, Facebook with uh, an answer, and I had to come back and I'd say, a I disagreement really... on Facebook? <laughs> God. I know. It's What's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But I disagree that Gary Oldman is an unremarkable actor. I actually think yeah. that one of the reasons you don't notice him is because he's so good at playing so many different parts. And I don't think that's my opinion. I think he actually is a really good actor. I don't, you can say you don't like him and that's fine, but oh, yeah. uh, we, Nick Hoffman offered, this will sound dumb, but my first non-child level movie performance was John Wayne in his version of true grit. And I still love it to this day. Okay, fair enough. It's not exactly his first performance. Well, no, I think I thought the idea of the question was your first like, oh, okay. seeing I, of I the thought, actor. Man, that's fair. Because let's face it, uh, John Wayne's first appearance wouldn't have impressed anybody. It's in some minor role in a lesser western or a war film back in the Probably. 30s, so or 40s. Well, maybe. I mean, yeah, it took it was a while before he he became uh, Temujin in uh, <laughs> The Conqueror, which truly... Good old, good old Marion Morrison. Anyway, yep. thanks, Nick. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Ed Shields gives, says, Bill Paxton in Streets of Fire. And At, I am sorry, I have to correct you there, Ed. That is effing Bill Paxton <laughs> in Streets of Fire. Yeah, um, and it's it's actually true. I asked him about this because he, keeps, he will keep saying Streets of Fire until I watch it, so... Uh, Tyler Stewart said, gives us Kirsten Dunst in Interview with a Vampire. I, yeah, that was astounding. It was, because she's a child actor, which doesn't necessarily make you go, I wonder where this person's going, but she really is very yeah. solid in that role. Uh, next, we have Professor Dr. Rebecca Pelkey. Mm. If, uh, these won't be super recognizable to a lot of people, but I immediately loved Gail Garcia Bernal in Mozart in the Jungle, which is a prime show, mm. but he's been in a bunch of movies, too. Also, Devery Jacobs, who I first saw in Rhymes for Young Ghouls. She's in the show Reservation Dogs now. Okay, yeah. I've seen that, but hmm. I have not seen the others. Hmm. Well, that's you. why we like these answers. You bring stuff to our attention we wouldn't have known otherwise. Yes, and embarrass us by saying <laughs> things we don't know about. Thanks a lot! Well, it embarrasses Max. Ben Carl says, Liz Taylor and Richard Burton and Cleopatra. Who? I'd probably seen them before and didn't realize it. <laughs> Burton and Taylor seem to almost compete with the production design for grandeur and scale. That's a point. They really were... <laughs> fighting against the scenery. Oh, they were was, fighting everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but mostly they were fighting against a big pool of scotch. Uh, <laughs> I was fairly young and very fortunate as their catalogs were completely available on DVD by that point, so I didn't have to wait to see more of them. Yeah. Uh, I am both pleased and sorry for you. Yeah. Well, you know, nobody can be a Virginia Woolf, but who that was a fun film. <laughs> Angelo Patsalis offers Jude Law, Anthony Hamilton. He only did one series, Cover Up John. Hmm. Well, Jude Law, I mean, boy, there's another person with a lot of range. Oh, he also, Chris Atkins in Blue Lagoon. Interesting. Now, see, it didn't make me want to see more of him as an actor. <laughs> and we certainly I, see a lot of I him as... I thought you saw quite a bit of him... <laughs> Period in that. Even little Chris. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Cooper says Danny Kay. Uh, okay. I used to watch old movies on Saturday afternoons after cartoons. That is an important clarification. Thank you, Kelly. Yep. And I saw him in something and fell in love. This was in the 1970s, early 80s, before the VCR was affordable or popular, so I didn't have any options, but I loved catching his movies on Saturday. I know I saw Wonder Man. 
that one. Mm-mm. The court jester, oh, yeah. oh sure, and a song is born, which has a fascinating history. Wait, is that a song is born or a star is born? Probably star. Which has a fascinating history of remakes and is one of the few where he doesn't sing because the studio refused to pay his salary his wife negotiated. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. I might have seen A White Christmas 2, or that might have been later. I never did get around to watching all of his movies, but I've lost count of how many times I've seen The Court Jester, of course. Mm. Owned it on a VHS Laserdisc and DVD. Hmm, I should see if it's on Blu-ray. <laughs> I can almost guarantee she's talking about good old Channel 56, because they used yep. to run that movie a lot. All the time, and I never got tired of it. Uh, Steve Harvey brings in Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal in Donnie Darko. That's a good choice. Have you Super. seen that film? I have. I've heard it's it's somewhat disturbing, but it's also really, really good. I don't know the film. It's a very polarizing film. A lot of it doesn't make any sense to me. The performances are really good. The story is very confusing. Ah, made by Polaroid, it, so you heard it here first. Yes. Richard Tatum gives us Don Cheadle in Devil in a Blue Dress. Film ceiling performance. Don't didn't see that. No, I haven't either. He highly recommended it, though. And Don Cheadle, you know, if you haven't seen Miles Away... See that. Yeah. I don't yeah. know that. I, I'm not saying don't see Devil in a Blue Dress because I haven't well, seen or it. Or Hotel Rwanda. Yeah. But he wrote, directed, and stars in Miles Away, and it's a great film. And see our episode on Miles Away. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, Geneva Brunetti is back. Woo-hoo. Peter Laurie in M. Ooh. Not only sold me on him, but on the entire silent film genre. That's some performance. Yeah. It was the first film we watched for a silent film era class in college. Hmm. Val Coons, who, who still cannot av- avoid being related to Mike, oh, right. <laughs> said, Humphrey Bogart, who I saw a Maltese Falcon and saw the way he got slapped and laughed about it and was transfixed. Yeah. I couldn't wait to find more of his movies. Yep, yep, I can definitely see that. Charles Forsyth is here with Mike's favorite actor, Nicolas Cage mm. in Valley Girl, which is a, a very non- I've seen that. It's a very non-Nicolas Cage role. Isn't that the role that he got instead of the lead in, oh, what was it? There was some film that he was in, and he was underage, and we covered this in one of our, episodes, one of our 200 episodes, that doesn't have Batman in it. <laughs> uh, and I think he ended up making Valley Girl instead, but anyway, eh, cool. Not sure. But anyway, thank you so much for these answers. This oh, was yes. great. Really interesting stuff, and actually makes me want to go out and check out some of these people I've never heard of. Yes, or Devil in the and- Blue Dress. Then speaking of which, Mike. Oh, so who's you, who was uh, your your guy when you or your actor when you saw them and you said, "I have got to see what they're going to do next." Well, and this actually happened because I saw this actor who I'd never heard of before, and immediately was like, "Let's go to the video store and find out." There must be other things, and unfortunately, it's a problematic actor. Uh oh, it's Kevin Spacey. Oh, and I yeah, saw him in Usual Suspects, yeah. which I adore. And it's a I was great like, movie. "Who is this guy?" See our episode I've, on *Mutual Suspect*. It's like, who is this guy? I've never heard of him. And has he done other things? It turned out he had. Um, his, I'd say his probably best known role is either that or *American Beauty*. Uh, *American yeah. Beauty* got a lot of press when it came out, but he did a couple yeah. other films. We did one on *The Big Kahuna*. See our entire episode on *The Big Kahuna*. Um, <laughs> he did uh, something called *K-Pack*, which I did not see. Um, yeah. Generally, when he shows up, I'm just like, "Who is this?" And he's he was a really good actor, and then it turned out that, well, you know, well, he was a yeah, a wretched human being. How about you, Max? Uh, me, it was kind of a sad one. It was Heath Ledger. 
Oh. And I saw A Knight's Tale, and I thought, this guy's really cool. I want to see what he does next. You know what I saw him in first was this what? dreadful fantasy show called Roar. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. It was like a, a medieval Irish fantasy. Yeah, and he was the lead in that. And I'm like, who's that? And yeah. he turned out to be, you know, somebody pretty amazing, but, you know. Yeah. Actually, I think, you know, now that I say it, I can't remember whether whether um, Night's Tale was first or Ten Things I Hate About You was first. Oh. It might have been that, and I liked him in that, too. I thought, this guy's, it's funny, he's not classically handsome, but it's really hard not to look at him. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> he Well, he isn't. His face is kind of unusual. It's just mm. a little, it's very distinctive. I thought he was attractive, but there you he go. He is, but he's just not standard. Mm. That's what made him stand out. He doesn't look like... Hello, I am Hollywood bot male model one. You mean Christopher Atkins? Oops! Ooh! <laughs> yes, pretty much. Yeah. Well, uh, that yeah. was a, a good poll question, but oh, if we only had another one. Oh, well. Yeah, well, we don't. So moving on. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. all right. So, what movie that you've never actually seen but looks so disturbing you never even want to give it a try? Hmm. You know, a movie you just saw and said, just said, nope, no, uh-uh. Max's answer will have spiders in it. <laughs> Probably very likely, but uh, ki- kind of. And how can they repo- Oh! That part is a secret, and we will reveal <laughs> that well, along along with today's secret word at the end of the episode. Yeah, the secret word's going to be hospital in a second. <laughs> <laughs> but no, now we move on to the actual movie we're talking about, Ghost World and Trivia. Facts. So the budget, seven million dollars. Yeah, this was a little indie film. Worldwide gross, eight point seven million dollars. Ah, so it made its money back. Kinda. <laughs> yeah, but you can see why there was not a Ghost World Two Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, well, uh, this movie was based on a a graphic novel by Daniel Cloes. Klaus. Excuse me, Klaus, as in Santa. <laughs> <laughs> That's Claus. <laughs> Thora Birch's character, the, the main character, her name is, and I don't know if they ever say this, but it's, her name is Enid Coleslaw. Mm. And Enid Coleslaw is an anagram for Daniel Claus. <laughs> yep. Ain't that cute. <laughs> this is the first film based on a graphic novel or comic book ever to receive an Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Mm. It didn't win. Nope. Hollywood don't like them comic books. Eh, there may be other reasons. According to director Terry Zwigoff, Steve Buscemi was so uncomfortable playing the role of Seymour that whenever shooting completed for the day, he'd immediately change his clothes so he could look completely different. <laughs> it wasn't exactly a good um, look for Mr. Buscemi. Not really, <laughs> but it works. Yeah. Uh, there is this odd scene where Enid and her friend Rebecca are trailing these two people they decide are Satanists. Yeah. The male Satanist is played uncredited by the production designer Edward T. McAvoy. He got the part in the last minute, based largely to his resemblance to Anton LaVey, who had oh. been the director's first choice, but who inconveniently died four years earlier. <laughs> yeah. McAvoy had to shave his head completely bald, just for that scene. Nice. Anton LaVey, by the way, for those of you who don't know, was a famous Satanist of the uh, 80s and 90s. Mm. 
Seymour's room is modeled after Terry Zwigoff's own room, particularly the shelved record collection, pinup art, and historical memorabilia. Ah. The character of Seymour appears only as the victim of the girl's prank in the comic mm-hmm. and was made significant at Terry Zwigoff's suggestion. Another change includes Rebecca having a rather diminished role compared to a role in the comic, which gave a more balanced amount of attention to both girls. I in- Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Enid's notebook drawings, Enid is basically an artist, and the drawings are done by Sophie Crum, Robert Crum, and Aline Kaminsky Crum. Hmm. What crummy drawings? Yeah, yeah, sorry, Aline <laughs> Kaminsky Crum's daughter. Mentioned, this is mentioned in the clo- closing credits. Uh, this is Crum as in R. Crum. Right. And Terry Zwigoff, by the way, is the guy who directed the documentary Crum. Yes. So he knew, he knew Crum. Oh, it goes uh, further than that, but we'll get into that. The production team reached out to Sophie Crum after Daniel Klaus insisted to Terry Zwigoff that Enid's work had to be created by a female artist. Close insisted he should not do the drawings. The film was not an easy sell to mainstream audiences, as really? the Buddy mm. Take might have uh, told you, which got studios thinking of the strangest ways to make it more accessible. According to Zwigoff, one executive suggested that let's have a bus at the end with the destination art school spelled out on it. Another suggested a double wedding where Edith marries Seymour and Rebecca marries Josh. Uh... Yes. Sure. <laughs> yes. This, I believe, was filed under stupid. <laughs> when Enid first talks to Seymour at his garage sale while flipping through records, she holds one up and asks if it's any good. Seymour says, no, not really. The record she holding, he's holding up is one of the R. Crumb and his Cheap Suit Serenaders records. Yep. The same guy who was, you know, that R. Crumb. Yeah. On the cover of the record, the slouched character on the far left that looks kind of like Albert Einstein playing a cello like you do, is Zwigoff, who was a member of the Serenaders and yep. a good friend of Crumb's. And there's more of that, too, but we'll keep going. Yeah. Close and Zwigoff presented Alfonso Beto with, with the task of making a comic book look to the movie. They asked for a fresh technique. Uh, earlier examples of the form, like X-Men in 2000 and Dick Tracy in 1990, were dismissed as literal-minded and, quote, insulting to the art form. According to Close, cameraman Beto really took it to heart, carefully studying the style and color of the original comics. The final cut is just slightly oversaturated, purposely evoking the way modern world looks where everything is trying to get your attention at once. That's really weird because the original comic was black and white. Huh. Okay. <laughs> and blue. But. Uh, the uh, Coon Chicken Inn... Mm-hmm. was a real restaurant chain founded in 1925 in, this will shock you, Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh. However, it folded in the late 50s and did not change its name to Cook Chicken, as in the film. Uh, the Coon Chicken poster that Eden submits as her final piece for art class was, in fact, painted by Crumb. Uh. Uh, there's other stuff, uh, mostly about the uh, differences between the comic and the movie, but uh, I think that'll cover it. Do give us a story, Max. Tell uh. me a story. Oh, boy. <laughs> Enid and Rebecca are two disaffected teenagers fresh out of high school, disgusted by the world around them and everyone in it. Just ask them. <laughs> Enid, perhaps more so. Neither has any idea what they want to do with their lives, but Rebecca slowly finds her way into a more conventional life, which Enid resists with all her strength. Enid, a budding artist, however, does form an odd, very odd, 
bond with a 40-something social misfit obsessive record collector, Seymour. A bond which strays into some awkward territory. Enid is just trying to find her way in the world as it feels like her world is falling apart around her, as so many teenagers feel, as so many people feel all through their life, as it often feels for many of us. The film. So, the usual starting question. Did you see this when it came out? No. I have never seen this movie before. Me neither. Yeah. It was one of those I always kept meaning to because it has all these people in it I think are really cool. I like Thora Birch. I like Scarlett Johansson. I like Steve Buscemi. I didn't even know that Bob Balaban is in this movie. Who's that? He was Enid's father. Right, but oh well. See, I recognize him. It's like, oh yeah, you were a nebbish in another film. What he film? is in everything. <laughs> he tends to play small nebbishy men because, well, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Bob, you're terrific, but he, yeah. he does tend to have a type. Yeah, Terry and, Gar uh, I, is briefly yeah, Terry in Gar, who is uncredited as Maxine, Ileana Douglas, the indie darling for many years, who plays. That art teacher we've all met Ugh. and always want to throw through a large window. Yes, the art teacher who makes sure to have a point where she puts down comics as a lesser form, which yeah. I'm sure is a commentary from both Daniel Klaus and um, Terry's Wigoff. Very likely. Um, real quick, so, so yeah. Terry's Wigoff, not only was he the director of the Crumb biopic, not only was he in the Cheap Suit Serenaders, uh, they actually have a friendship that goes back to early 70s. I went and looked him up. So Terry's Wigoff actually ran a small comic shop in San Francisco between 72 and 73, and he published three comics that had Crumb material in it. And in fact, it was mostly Crumb material. So he and and Crumb go back forever. Um, And it is funny that he disses the band, because not only is it our Crumb's band, but he's actually in the band. Um, But yeah, so that connection, I didn't know that they'd had... Crumb do any of the artwork. I, any of the Crumbs do the artwork. Um, Sophie is our Crumbs daughter. If you've not seen movie Crumb, yeah. um, it's really uh, interesting. Oh, <laughs> um, what it, does that mean? It is. It's really interesting because Crumb's life, Crumb is the most normal of his family, at least the ones that appear in the film. Two sisters refuse to appear, which tells me that they're probably pretty smart people. Okay. Um, but Crumb comes from, honestly, a... It's not even trailer trash. I, I didn't even know what to call it, but it's bizarre uh. family. And they're on camera. They're being themselves, but stuff is weird. And our Crumb himself is not exactly Mr. Normal. Um, I, I, I do have to say one thing that struck me about... I mean struck me about this movie where they're trying to show what an oddball and what an in effect outcast um, Seymour is. I mean, this guy collects vinyl Shut records. Up. I mean, what Shut kind up. of freak, <laughs> mutant, just degenerate <laughs> creature in, this, in even in 2001 would be collecting records? What, my God! Why aren't those people rounded up and put in, in, into some place where they can be kept away from decent human beings? Yeah, my note was, ah, hipster record party. <laughs> um, uh, my first thought is at the they, Enid and uh, Rebecca meet uh, Seymour at a garage sale, and my I have in my notes like Seymour is selling old records. He's one of Mike's people. <laughs> he does. He has a big box. He's selling old records. Except the one that he keeps put. I could tell. 
the problem was he's pushing a country record at at the. Well, she uh, actually it's a blues record. She ends up buying yeah. it. Yeah, uh, and she ends up you liking one of the the songs on it. Um, before we get too far away from the actors, uh, Thora yeah. Birch, I, I know I know her from something. Oh, yeah. You know I her t- from many things. First off, the probably the best thing known thing she's from was American Beauty. Okay, okay. But I, I know what you're really thinking, of course, is her tour de force and the defining role uh, as Empress Savina in the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Oh, yes, right. she played opposite Jeremy Irons. <laughs> <laughs> I suffer without my stone. That's, I know that's, that's a e-ragon, that's... <laughs> damn it. <laughs> uh, and, and there's somebody else I want to mention, but before we get too far, since this is about her, what do we think yeah. of Scarlett Johansson in this movie? I think it, I really was impressed by her. She underplays so well in this. Every Her entire performance is very muted and yet still very, you can, you, you can still see some of the inner life. It's a little tricky because... And it's tricky for Thora Birch, too. This is another one of these, oh, look at this. We have two two women, two teenagers, and they were, by the way. I mean, uh, Scarlett was 17, and uh, uh, Thora Birch was 19 in this. And two thunderously beautiful women who we are supposed to believe have no idea how pretty they are. Yeah. I mean, at least they didn't put glasses on her. <laughs> No, they do that on they do that on Enid. Yeah. Well, she's matching the comic character. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you want to say that, I want to say I honestly think Scarlett's a little wasted. Um, she's capable of a lot more. And here's the thing: having not seen this film, but I have read the comic a number of times, mm-hmm. and you mentioned this in the trivia that her, uh, Rebecca's role was lessened to quote yeah. better balance out the characters. Uh, this is Enid's movie. I'm sorry, it's not really about Rebecca no, sorry, at all. The, the quote was badly phrased. Oh. In, in, they're saying in the comic, it's more balanced. Oh, okay, I agree yeah, no, with it's that. Absolutely, no, it's absolutely true. She's much more a supporting character in here. Although this is a movie that really got her noticed as an adult actor. Before this, she was a, a child actor. Mm. And she was usually a so-and-so's sister, daughter, or what have you. I have this feeling there's other movies we're going to watch that were made, oh, not that long after this. The one we're going to mm. find out also helped her career. But we'll, we'll get into that later. Yeah, there's one actor yeah. you left out, and I was kind of surprised because... I saw him in the credits, and I'm like, where is he? And I, was, I had to look him up, which, and I was like, oh, that one? was him? And that's Brad Renfro. Uh, okay, where do I know him from? The Client. Oh, was he the kid? Yeah. Oh. So Brad Renfro is unfortunately a very sad story. Um, when that's they right. did The Client, which is actually a terrific film with Susan yeah. Sarandon, who she plays and a Tim, lawyer. And Tommy Lee Jones. And Tommy Lee Jones. And boy, do they were, oh, their string chemistry is great together. Yeah. Um, and what happens is, if I remember correctly, is this young kid and his brother witness a murder. Yeah. But it's made to look like the kid is more involved than he is, and Susan Sarandon's character takes him on pro bono, and he becomes her client. Um, and they picked a kid who was not an actor, literally out of a trailer park, because they liked his street smartness and his humor. But he was just a kid, and I think he was like 11 or 12. Yeah, but he walks away with that movie. He's excellent. He's really good. And sadly, what happened is he did a few films, and he got into or back into drugs and alcohol. He was (laughs) in and out of rehab. Um, This was not his last film, but close to it. And he's barely in it. He plays Josh. 
a character who also had a much bigger role in the comic. Um, and at one point, one of my notes is, what happened to Josh? Like, he looks like he's driving them around. He's obviously somebody they hang out with, much to his chagrin. Although, mm-hmm. you also get the hint that as much as he finds them annoying, he also likes the fact that these two women have some interest in him. Yeah. And he just disappears for most of the film and then shows up very briefly at the end in a scene that I actually think was fairly unnecessary. Um but, but can, that's Brad Renfro having grown up. And he does fine with the three lines he's given. Yeah. Um, it's just sad because, you know, Hollywood... And there was a lot of talk because of this where Hollywood does not take any kind of responsibility for its child stars. Yeah. And he's not the first and sadly probably won't be the he last won't. that nope. this sort of thing happens to. But it's basically like, hey, thanks for making this movie. Bye. And... You know, when you, especially when you're that young and you suddenly have all this fame thrown on you and you come from nothing, you have no idea how to deal with that. I wouldn't know how to deal with it now, and I come from the middle class. Um, but I just wanted to mention him because I, I remember yeah. seeing him in The Client when it came out and really liking him and thinking him and the kid from T2, um, whose name I'm blanking oh, on. Oh, Edward Furlong. Edward yeah. Furlong. I'm like, I wonder where these kids are going. And Edward Furlong did a few movies and then kind of silently... Yeah, as far as I know, he's still around. But Brad Renfro, I knew, died a, a sadly try. He OD'd on, I think, mm. his heroin, um, which is sad. There are other, you know, surprising people. There's a whole lot of unknowns in this movie, yeah. and a whole lot of never was. But here and there, like the uh, Josh's boss uh, at the Sidewinder, yeah, is Brian George. Who you will not, whose name you may not know, whose face you might know. He's been in everything. He's one of those guys who goes, "Okay, uh, this this week you're playing a Greek guy. This week you're <laughs> playing an Indian guy. This week you're playing an American Indian." He's he's very pan ethnically cast, and he does a lot of voice work. You'll see him in all sorts of stuff. Ah. Uh, and of course, at the creepy vinyl heads party, where Mike hangs out. Uh, there are, <laughs> sorry, fired. Uh, yeah. The guy, the creepy guy who keeps hitting on, on, uh, on Becky, that's uh, David Cross. I know it's like I recognize you, and you always play yeah. a creepy guy, and he I always, always want to slap guy. you. He also does a lot of voice work. He was minion in um, uh, Megamind, and of course in Kung Fu Panda, he's the voice of Crane. Oh, okay. Yeah, he tends to play very. Annoying, nerdy, punchable <laughs> characters. They should have had him with uh, Enid's dad. Uh. <laughs> yeah. The uh, in some ways, there's some very painful elements in this movie. The the whole way that Seymour comes into Enid's life is, and, and this struck me. They're reading personals. Anyone remember those? Yeah. Personal ads in a newspaper, and I swear, reading them, it sounds exactly like Tinder profiles. <laughs> Yeah, you can't swipe left on a uh, newspaper. Yeah, and what they're doing to him is they catfish him. They um, call him. They call They call the number he leaves because he said, you know, he's looking for some blonde woman he had a moment with. And said, yeah, I'm her. Come and, have a, you know, come and meet me at this ball shop just to screw with him. And Enid ends up feeling bad for him because he looks so pathetic. And let's face it, Steve, first off, Steve Buscemi is, I think, a very underrated actor. He doesn't have a whole lot of range, but what he can do, he does very well. He's really good at being either really sleazy and unpleasant or being oddly likable and pitiful. Hmm. 
I think that's actually a pretty broad range. Because <laughs> um, I look at him from from uh, Fargo, Sierra and Terra episode on Fargo, and I look at him in this, and they are not the same character at all. Now, he does have one of those faces where, unlike Gary Oldman, it's really hard to lose him in a crowd. He's very distinctive. It's those eyes. And that's also, part like, of it. even little things like he plays Donnie in The Big Lebowski. And he has almost no lines, and what he does, he just says over and over again. And yeah, that Lebowski, that that that's your name, dude, dude, dude. That's your name. That's your name. Your name's Lebowski. <laughs> and yeah. yet again, totally different character. He no, he's very good, and he's really good in this. He is. I would because say it would arguably he's the best actor in this film and doing the best job. I think he may put in the best performance, although I think Thora Birch does a really good job. It's I agree. Uh, look, Scarlett Johansson, I think, is the one who goes on to be the best, because Scarlett Johansson, I think, is a, an astounding actor. Well, we'll she's find out, of, won't we? <laughs> yeah, she's one of those, unfortunately. You know, we'll be bringing in more, more stuff about her uh, throughout the series, as we did with Mr. Cusack. She's one of those people, she's coming dangerously close to Kevin Klein territory. <laughs> as Kevin Max, Klein, as I have mentioned. Tell us why you hate Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein is my nemesis. <laughs> and someday he may actually hear of me. But he is... Kevin Klein was proof, when I was young, he pro- was, was mathematical proof that the universe is colossally unfair. You like mean my fir- I first saw him, I can't remember if it was The Big Chill or Pirates of Penzance, which came out first, but I'm going, wow, this guy's really good looking and he's a really good actor. Okay, there are a lot of those. Oh, wow, he can, he can sing, too. Uh, okay, that that's fun. Wow, he can dance and play the piano and juggle, and now he's in Fish Called Wanda, and he's really funny and an acrobat, <laughs> and he's married to Phoebe Cates? <laughs> I was like, how is this fair? Yeah. And worst of all, apparently he's a nice guy. <laughs> and his children are not messed up. See? Uh, what kind the, the gall of this man. <laughs> See, that is why I hate Kevin Klein, because he is proof of everything wrong with the universe. Well, maybe I can make you feel a little bit better, Max. What's the last movie you saw with Kevin Klein in it? Uh, I don't remember, but I saw him on a, in an off-Broadway Cole, uh, Noel Coward play, and he friggin' nailed it! <laughs> guy was like in his 60s or 70s, and he just blew the doors off the place. Well, <sighs> at least we know that Scarlett Johansson can't sing. Oh, that's right, she can. Yes, she was in a movie can. called Sing, where she played a porcupine, and she rocked out! She, she was has great. an amazing singing voice. She is beautiful. She, is, she can be funny. Yeah. She can be dramatic. She can be tough. She, she can be tough. She can be an absolute badass, which when you consider what a tiny little woman <laughs> she is, and she is, and yet she has absolute, she's incredibly intimidating when she wants to be. Mm. Uh, the only thing I don't know is I don't know if she can dance, and I don't want to know. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the characters. Um, yeah. So Enid is yeah. ostensibly the, the center of this film. Enid and Rebecca are more or less two peas in the pod. I don't know about you, and I've read the comic a number of times, so this wasn't I've a surprise. I've never read the comic, yeah. But 
I know people like this, or I knew people like this, where they were too cool for school, yeah. and there was no way you were being given a membership card to their little club. No nope. matter if you liked any of the same things they liked, if you thought they were funny, if you were in any way trying to be friends with this kind of person, it was not going to work. Because by nope. doing so, that automatically made you somebody they didn't like. By liking yeah. the things they liked, you were cut out of that picture. And I, that part I found very believable because I definitely yep. knew people like that. And it's like they have, yeah, they have this charisma. People yep. are interested in them, but they're just not interested. They don't want to talk and to anybody. To the point of being actually cruel yeah. at times. They can be really mean. There's, but also I love how in sync sometimes they are. Just a little thing after high school graduation when they're standing at the dance and they're just standing next to each other, swaying in perfect sync with each other. But not moving that much. Yeah, Just, they've been yeah. they've been friends forever. Yeah, when they were little, they were friends. They're still friends. There must have been some point where things got really awkward in their early teens that they got through together, and that's why. And the nice thing too I like about this is I never get any impression that there's any kind of lesbian thing going on. That's nope, not nope. an issue. It's just two people that are really comfortable with each other, that can finish each other's sentences, that know each other's quotes, that just, I mean, I, I don't know anybody like this personally now. Oh, no, of course. No, I have no <laughs> idea. No, no, not somebody you have like your own private language with. Not yeah. at all, Max. Um, or do a podcast with. <laughs> um, like, if they, here's, they're the type of people that if they did a podcast... If anyone listened to it, they'd stop doing it. Yeah. yeah. It would have to be a podcast that nobody listened to because yeah. only they got it. Um, these would eventually become hipsters. Uh, <laughs> they are very... You know what they what their dynamic reminded me a lot of? I don't know if you ever watched the show. And this came out about in 1997. was the show Daria. I know. Animated show on MTV. Again, very two, a very disaffected girl with her slightly more adjusted but still... You know, very much seeing the world the way she does, best friend. They aren't. The thing is, they weren't as nasty, and in some ways, not as believable as Enid and and Becky, because there is that sense of defensive cruelty about them. The whole "we're going to hurt the world before it hurts us." Right. We're rejecting everyone because we're afraid we'll be rejected. Yeah. There's. So I have read the comic, and I do want to talk a little bit about that because this is an adaptation, and in a very rare occurrence. It's adapted by the person who wrote the original material. which That does not happen often. No. Usually when it starts to happen, Hollywood steps in and says, ha, 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 no, 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 I'll finish this for you. You can have, have your $500 and go yeah, sit yeah. down. Let's see, Enid, it's a comic book? Okay, so Enid can fly, and uh, <laughs> Becky has super strength. And... and some of the choices they made, I'm not sure. Actually, I should say that Daniel Klaus made, I'm not sure I agree with. And one of them is... What they do is Seymour in the comic, they make fun of him, you know, with his ad. They call him and then they hang out at the diner waiting for him to show up. He does in the diner because they're giggling. He eventually figures it out, pays his uh. bill and leaves. And then he yells at them through the window. It's like, you think you're so funny, blah, 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 blah. And that's it. We never see him again. Yeah. Yeah. They some said of, that. Some of the sexual tension is actually done with Josh. Uh. So what happens is. At one point, they're both sitting there going, you know, one of us should really F Josh. 
<laughs> but they're playing with him the way they play with everybody else. Like, I want to uh, get what I want out of him and then throw him away. So you're very, very right. I think you're dead on when you say these are people that are out to hurt the world before it hurts them. They're worried about mm. being accepted by anybody or anything. And what happens is one of them actually does. Oh, um, which again, which is I, I want kind of surprised that you know that's in the movie Josh just disappears, but in the comic, that's what happens, and that sort of weird you know are we together, aren't we together? And I'm pretty sure I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's Rebecca. It's not Enid who sleeps with uh, her. Uh. Um, you know, and of course Josh is left hanging because that's the way they treat people. Um, they also add this character. This, I don't know his name is Numchuck guy. Um, <laughs> I honestly don't know why he's here. I'm not sure. He's just this guy who hangs around. Yeah, it's Doug. Yeah. Oh, that's and, right. And he, he just hangs out in the sidewinder, never wearing a shirt. Yeah. And carrying a pair of num- nunchakus and just being a jerk. With him, they're actually nunchucks. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. He is a nunchuck guy. Yeah, and he shows and I, up twice, and yeah. I don't understand why he's there he doesn't add anything to the movie and he's very loud and he's like i wouldn't be surprised if he had shown up later you know like oh let's make fun you know like they do something to him but they don't yeah nope it's just it's just sort of background character it's very odd the satanists too the satanists that's well the satanists are set are scenery they don't even have any lines well they show up later in the comic too in fact at one point they see one of the satanists alone and they wonder what happened it becomes something that they just sort of focus on for a while but again nothing there's no any depth that's in this film is really hard to get to because the characters themselves don't want you to know um, there's a throwaway thing, and it's sad that they kind of throw it away because in the comic it's a bigger thing. At one point, Enid's packing, and she puts on this kid's record. Um, and the kid's record is a bow and a smile. Now, here's the thing. Yeah. To the best of my knowledge, it's not a real kid's record. They made it for the oh. movie. I don't know it. It was in the comic. In the movie, it's this record Enid is obsessing over because she remembers how much she loved it when she was a kid and she can't find it. And after a particularly bad day, she comes home and her father has gone through the attic and founded the record and her old record player and set it up for her. And she finds it and she bursts into tears when she puts it on because, of course, it represents this innocence she had and no longer has about the world. We we get a little of that when she's packing, when she's going to move out and she's looking at her old toys. Yeah. And she's not, she has no idea what to do with them. She doesn't know if she wants to take them or leave them. Yeah. On the other hand, I have to say, I think Enid is pretty much the architect of her own misery. Yeah. No, she does. She sets herself up in a lot of ways, even for things like when she's trying for that art scholarship. Or she actually, she isn't trying, but her annoying art teacher says, you know, I'm allowed to pick someone. And she chooses a very, that the painting from Coon Chicken right. as her final project. Which, quite honestly, I, that was the one unrealistic thing. I'm like, are you kidding me? A gal, they would, like, oh, the parents were all offended. The gallery and everyone would be, this is great! This is publicity! This is wonderful! This is, she's like controversial. This is money in the bank. And here's the thing about that it's pretty obvious that Enid is playing a game. Because there's this one other girl in the, art, the summer art class she's forced to take who has figured yeah. the teacher out, and quite honestly, it doesn't take much. And she comes in with all these conceptual pieces. Yeah, all these very socially aware, conceptual... Again, we know people like that. Yep. And it's like one of them is literally a tampon, tampon left in a teacup. 
which apparently is a reference to another Klaus comic. It might be. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I've read a bunch of them. I doesn't, it didn't jump into my head. It might be yeah. either from Art School Confidential, which also got made into a film. Uh, in oh. fact, it's probably that one. Okay. Um, but, of course, it's obvious that this girl has figured out how to get the attention of the art the teacher. teacher, basically. And she talks about how it's, oh, well, it's tea, like it's very, um, you know, proper and it's very formalized. Um but then the tampon, and she starts faltering, and the, and the, the teacher just thrills, jumps in, and goes, is representative of women. Like, yeah, that's what yeah. I meant. And it's just like, okay. And, you know, you can still hear Enid rolling her eyes. Yeah, yeah, it's drowning out the Nora Jones CD pretty solidly. Yeah, but, but what does uh, Enid do? She decides, I, it seems to me, maybe you can. Yeah. You, you have a different opinion, it seems to me that she's like, I can play this game and I can beat you at your stupid game. And that's why she brings in the poster. Not because she actually thinks it has anything to do with rape. In fact, when she's describing it, she seems fairly halting. Yeah, she's basically making it, you know, when the teacher is saying, so what are you trying to say with this? And you really get the feeling she's making it up on the spot. And the sad no, thing I is, think that's true. she's not wrong. No, she isn't. She's, she's actually right. dead on. Because what she's saying is, we shouldn't pretend that this didn't exist. We shouldn't pretend... That uh, these things, that you can just change a name and have the racist elements just disappear. No, she's absolutely dead bang on. Of course, it also points out that there's no people of color in this film except for the guy who owns the Safeway or whatever the hell it is. Well, and, well, and the and the blues blues singer we see very briefly before Blues Hammer. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, I do want to talk about there's, well. There's kind of an awkward part of this, uh, of uh, Enid and Seymour's relationship. <laughs> yeah, it, kind Enid of is basically at a low point in her life. She feels everyone's let her down, and she basically goes and sleeps with Seymour. Yeah. Who is about 30 years older than she is. And has not about in any 25. way, and not in any way come on to her, because he's like, what the hell would she want to do with me? And he's right. He and says as much. She got, she's because she has been throughout the movie. She's been trying to set him up with a date. Right, the and woman she, he actually was trying to get with yeah. in the first place. And he's trying. She's been trying to convince him that yes, he's you know women would want to go out with him. And you know, I have to say, I'm not so sure she's <laughs> right. And he, I gotta give him credit. I really like this performance of him because Steve Buscemi brings this real self awareness mm-hmm. about Seymour knows what he is. I mean, she's—he's—he's he's, he's an obsessive collector. As his, he says, "Do you think it's healthy to obsessively collect this stuff?" He has fifteen hundred seventy-eights. Yeah, fifteen hundred seven—not not standard thirty-three and a third record albums that people could play on normal record players now. Yes, most of the ones you buy now, I don't think they can they handle seventy-eights. Nope. Yeah, he has fifteen hundred records that only he and his strange collection of friends can play and he shows no sign of changing that he doesn't want to change who he is i kind of admire that and she asks him at one point when i was set trying to set you up did you ever think about going out with me and he looks at her like she's insane she says no you're a beautiful young girl why would you be interested in me yeah and then they have champagne and which she she basically makes seymour do everything and let's face it yeah the way the characters played very well, Seymour doesn't have a lot of backbone. Um, he does, yeah. He has very little anima, very little 
drive. But he's perfectly willing to be pulled along. I mean, when he gets a girlfriend, the the blonde woman shows up eventually. Yep. And for reasons passing understanding, goes out with him. And well, she she's like, somebody too. I've seen her as a mom in some other. Yeah, family. I don't. Can't I don't remember her. the name. I don't know who she is. But yeah, yeah, she's clearly trying to remake him. Right. As, it's it is very strange, and I think that the part that's really most disheartening about it is we know fully well what's going to happen. The next day, sure enough, Enid has gotten out of bed and left before Seymour's woken up. And when none of it, at least I wasn't, well, of course I read the, well, he's not in the comic. No. Um, but I was not surprised at all that Enid doesn't call him and doesn't want to talk to him because basically yep. she took what she wanted, which was a moment of intimacy and nothing, yeah, it also nothing meant a else. Moment of, a moment of vulnerability for her, which she can't stand. Right. And then, I mean, he goes looking for her at the apartment she and Becky are allegedly moving into together. I have to say, Becky does something rather cruel. She shows him uh, Enid's art book, right. where she's drawn a comic of him sitting alone in the diner the first time they saw him, waiting for the woman who was never going to show up, and he's drawn as a loser, and he just loses his stuff and goes out to the... He thinks she's having an <laughs> affair with Josh, and he goes and tries to start trouble, and mullet guy yeah. ends up beating him up. Because that... Whatever. Yeah, I don't um, know that, why. So that it's scene, a, real quick, the one in the yeah. apartment where he, basically Rebecca turns on Enid. Now, to be fair, yeah. Enid has basically been blowing her off, too, at this point. Yeah. And, you know, doing things without her, even though they're, you know, fast best friends, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at that point where they're in the apartment, did you actually find that turning of Rebecca believable? I did. Huh. Because I think Rebecca felt very has felt very betrayed. And especially she's... She's angry at, Se- at Seymour. She's jealous. Yeah. Because, in effect, Seymour took her... She feels like Seymour took her friend away. And yeah. that's very common. I think the problem I have is that because they lessened the Rebecca character, we don't see enough of the dependence yeah. and the the closeness. Like, we know they're close almost because they tell us, but we don't really see those two do anything together except hang out somewhere where one of them wants to do something and the other one doesn't. So we're at the end of that kind of high school friendship, which often doesn't last because Mm -hmm. people become different people and they move on. And unhealthy people stay together like me and Yeah, (laughs) Let let us, like, freaky, codependent losers like us stay together for, you know, 30, 40 years after high school. Well, the weirdest part is you and I were only friends in school for one year. Yeah. And then you left. Yep, yep. (laughs) Jerk. He graduated. But by that point, I had already laid my eggs in your brain, so you didn't really have much choice. I hate that itch. Um, so when that, for me, when that point comes, I don't feel that the re- for me, I don't feel that the rest of the movie fully justified my believing it. Um, yeah. But I, I can totally it, it see it your way. Yeah, I, I, th- I thought it worked. It, it made sense to me. I mean, it's I thought it was very touching. She goes and visits him. He's in the hospital because, you know, nunchuck guy almost strangled him. Yeah, sure. And she says, and he has the book, and he says, yeah, look at this. And she looks at him going, you idiot. Look at the rest of the book. Yeah. And he's turning the pages, and every page is him. But it's much, you it, know, there's it, one that says, my hero. Yeah. And they're all it's very, very positive. very touching. And I think, and, yeah. yeah. And we we got to talk about the ending and Norman. Yeah, we do. Um, that is a very. I don't know if this is what happens in the comic book. It's a no. very. This is very strange running character in it. 
every so often, Becky and Enid. So this guy is not a figment of anyone's imagination. He's a real person. Yep. There's this old guy in a suit sitting on a bus bench, despite the fact the bench has a sign on it that says not in service. He's waiting for a bus, and he, his name's Norman. Enid will sit and talk to him briefly, and he is absolutely convinced that there is a bus coming and he's going to get on it and leave. Mm-hmm. And every day he's there and the bus does not come. And then the bus comes and he gets on and disappears. Yep. And the final shot of the movie is Enid with a suitcase, goes to the, sits down on the same bench, the same bus shows up, she gets on and drives away. Do you think the bus was a symbol? I guess... I think it had to be the idea that she she had said her fantasy well used to be just leaving, going somewhere else and starting a new life, just disappearing. And I guess that's what she does. I just is it positive or negative? I'm not sure. Is she, does she want to be a different person or does she want to vanish? Well, and it's it's an ambiguous ending um which I'm generally a fan of. I like things that make me think. I don't need everything all wrapped up in a nice bow. But one could easily decide that that bus is a symbol for death. Because we've got Norman, who's an old man, obviously... Clearly alone. Clearly alone, not really all there. Because when he talks to her, he doesn't really look at her. He looks near in her direction, but he doesn't look at Enid. And at one point, she even comes by and she says, you're the only person I can count on. You're the only person who's going to be there every day. And of course, not long after she says that, the bus shows up. Well, he says, you don't know anything. I'm leaving soon. Right. And here's the thing. I could easily see the bus being a symbol for Norman dying. Because he's an old man. Then she gets on. I... I think it's left in such a way that it could be construed as maybe Enid takes her own life. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't have thought of that. That's That's what occurred to me. In the comic, she actually drives off. She actually has a car. What what kind of car does she buy in the comic? A hearse. Which Uh, totally... See? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she eventually just decides that she's going to do that thing, and she does drive off. And interestingly, the artist, Dan Klaus, said that he thought of that as a um, very positive ending. Not as a Uh, depressing ending. Most other people, especially those who've read Daniel Klaus's comics, thought of it as a depressing ending because that's generally how his comics go. Uh, Um, I... I, it seemed so literal out of nowhere that I couldn't help but think that the bus was meant to be a symbol. I'm just not sure what of. If it's not, if it's meant to be taken literally, why that bus? Because she doesn't know where it goes. Yeah, and it's, there's, and no, there's no sign on it. There's no destination. And it is the same bus. Well, we don't see it, right? We don't. the sign would be on the we, front. Right. I don't know. But I will say for those who don't like ambiguous endings, it's got something of an ambiguous ending. Yeah. Um, I think in the film, we're supposed to think of it the way that it's supposed to be thought of in the comic. I think it's meant to be a positive thing. But it's not a sure thing. You notice one of the, there's one difference between Enid getting on the bus and Norman getting on the bus. And it's it's a little thing, but it, it to me, it had meaning. Enid Norman has nothing with him. Enid gets on with a suitcase. Yeah. It's like she's bringing something of her life with her. 
Uh, and if you were going, what three books would you take? So that's, <laughs> that's a deeper. Yeah, <laughs> we haven't done yeah. a deeper this episode, so we had to have at least one. Yep. We haven't mentioned Bumpy either. It's been <laughs> episodes and episodes. I since haven't we missed that at all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you miss Bumpy. Uh, um, but only it is because, Only point. because you broke the sight off my rifle. <laughs> I'm going to break something else in a second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it is getting to be about that time. What do you say we uh, yeah, wrap up and make our conclusions? Because I think this is one of those rare episodes where we haven't really been clear. Yeah. The finish. So, Max. So. What did you think of Ghost World? I think it's really well done. Um, I really, I like the performances. I like the way it looks. It's not a comfortable movie. No. So, there's a lot of cringe, as they say. But also, I really like the way it's edited. Is It doesn't linger on the really uncomfortable parts. They're there, they affect you, then we're in the next scene. Mm. I think that works really well. I don't know, the end. I, I, I like things... I, I don't want to work that hard. I like a nice, <laughs> simple ending. So, but I, okay, I, I Max, still like she went it. to a nice new apartment, she got a great job, and she had a wonderful life at the end. Are you happy? Yes. <laughs> he grows up and marries you. Is that what you wanted to hear? <laughs> yes. There's a deeper. deeper. Uh, <laughs> by the way, there is one. There's one moment in there that I, I, you know, made me a little uncomfortable, but also is strangely ironic. There is this minor character, uh, John Ellis, oh, uh, yeah. who who shows up a couple of times. The Nazi, yeah. Yeah, basically, he's uh, he's a racist, and he's always buggy. Enid is apparently Jewish, and t- refers to Scarlett Johansson's character as your Aryan friend. Scarlett Johansson is Jewish, by the way. <laughs> ah. Yeah. This is a surprise to many people with, with the blonde hair and the blue eyes. And, and Johansson. Johansson, of course, <laughs> of the, the famous 12 tribes of Israel, the Johansson tribe. <laughs> Not to mention the fact Scandinavia is just known for being overflowing with Jews. It was probably Johansenburg. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a city down in Johansenstein? Oh. <laughs> no, there, there, are, there are actually... but. Uh, her mother was a New York from the Bronx. She was a New York Jewish lady. So. Ah, but uh, yeah. But uh, tell me now, you had you had not seen this either. No. What did you think of it? So of course I'm making comparisons between the comic and this. Um, I really found your 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 trivia about the color choices interesting because again the comic <laughs> is black and white and blue. <laughs> it's like uh, okay, you're so you're trying to do the Dick Tracy thing, okay. They tried to shoot that film in only seven colors, and that's that was the deal with Dick Tracy. But oh boy, it was a terrible movie. Yeah, it was an interesting idea. It just did not work. Although, uh, come on, it's fun to watch Al Pacino just go pile that scenery high. I got some chewing to do. Big more dinner. Big more dinner. Big more dinner. I did not kidnap you. I am kidnapping you now. <laughs> Um, I actually found the pacing really slow. This is not a short film. This is almost two hours long. And there's no big conflict. It's all internal conflict um, with occasional moments of awkwardness. Um, mostly involving Steve Buscemi, which is, you know, there you go. That You pay your five bucks, you get your Steve Buscemi and his awkwardness. I found, in the end, the movie ultimately unsatisfying. Huh. Um, I didn't, I felt we got too much Enid. We don't see her really succeed at anything. We don't have any idea where she's going. Um, when the comic came out, it was very controversial. Dan Klaus got 
accused by a lot of people of taking credit from another writer because people did not believe that he could write teenage girls that well. Wow. And if the comic, even more than this film, you read this and go, the, I've known people like this. I've known women like yeah. this. And it, yeah. fe- and it doesn't feel like a guy writing women. It feels like a teenage girl. And that type of teenage, like he nails it. Um, there's some things that he did with the screenplay that I don't agree with and that I think distract from the original story. But it's his story, so, I, you know, mm. is he wrong? I don't know. But in, in the end, I think it's, it's a slow film. It's a character film. It's an actor's film, although not to the extent of some of the actor's films we've seen. And it didn't make me go, wow, that was a great experience, or I'm glad I watched this. I thought, eh, I don't think it's badly made. I just don't think the story as portrayed uh, is really that interesting or that enthralling. I liked it. I, th- I like the sort of slice of life. I like the idea of the people trying to figure out who they are. I thought the performances were good. I, I liked the dialogue. And again, I liked the fact they didn't shy away from the awkward and uncomfortable parts. Yeah. And I thought... I, was, I really liked the characters who did a lot with very little. Bob Balaban's character has maybe four lines, mm. and I know his character completely. Yep, I true. totally, yep, yeah. yep. And There's he, no bad performances. Mac, the character Maxine, played by Terry Garr, has two lines, and I immediately understand why, why Enid hates her. Yeah. Just, I think we don't know. We see the conflict, and we have no resolution. And we don't even know a direction. I have no idea what happens to Enid or where she's going or what she wants to do. If she had gone to art school, she was going for the wrong reasons. Yeah. She would have, if she had bought into all of that art school dreck that they talk about and, you know, oh, the artist's purpose and artist statements, God, I hate those. Yeah. Um, I, I think I, if she had fallen into that, she would have been very unhappy because she didn't believe in it. And if she'd spent her entire time fighting against it, she wouldn't have gotten anywhere because art school's not going to stand for that. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, I don't. I feel like we got conflict with that resolution, but that's okay. Okay. That's like this show. You're not going to get a resolution. Max says, watch it. I say, eh. But you know what we don't want to shy away from is our poll question. Yes, indeed. And to remind you again, is uh, what movie, a movie you've never seen, looks so disturbing that you never even want to give it a try? You don't want to go near it. And you can let us know. You can go to our website at maxmikemovies.com and leave a comment. You can also email us at us at maxmikemovies.com and you can find us on them socially mediated, still Elon Musk free <laughs> um, social medias, Twitter and Facebook under Max Mike Movies. Ooh. Yes, you can also tie a note to Pigeon's Leg, uh, destroy household pests with it. Uh, no, that's string. Uh, oh, right. String, uh, washing powder, what's the difference? So um, we're going to continue on with uh, Miss Johansenberg. Johansenstein. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and what are, we, what are we watching next week, Max? Next week we're going to watch another movie that, uh, again, as I said, this one was considered her breakout. This is the one I always thought of as her breakout role. Me too. Yep. Which was the Sofia Coppola-directed movie, Lost in Translation, or No Dad, I Shouldn't Be in Front of the Camera. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, but that's okay, because it's not like she has any kind of uh, relationship with an older Stowe. Bill Murray. Hey, so if you like the awkwardness of this film, just wait till next week, because there's even more on your way.
This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Thank you.